Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Global Visions podcast. My name is Ashton Higgins, and I'll be today's host. The podcast is produced in conjunction with the Brown Journal of World Affairs and seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are super excited to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, Vanessa Suarez. Vanessa is a senior policy advisor for the climate change company Carbon 180. Her main focus is on federal policy on carbon removal with an emphasis on environmental justice. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us today. First, how did you get involved in climate policy and specifically, why are you involved with Carbon 180? Yeah, thanks so much for the question, Ashton, and for having me on. Um, my interest in the environment and climate change more generally started when I was pretty young. Growing up in California's Central Valley, I saw firsthand the early impacts of the climate crisis from worsening droughts and wildfires to decreasing snowpacks in our mountains to the increasing number of summer days over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And I also saw how these climate impacts compounded a lot of existing environmental injustices in the Central Valley, like deepened household energy burdens, more heat-related illnesses, and aggravated respiratory illnesses in the region of the country that already has the worst air pollution. So these experiences really led me to study conservation and resource studies at UC Berkeley, where I was first exposed to climate policy as well as carbon removal, but these paths weren't immediately aligned for me. My formal introduction to climate policy was with Dr. Jonas Meckling at Berkeley, who taught climate and energy policy in the College of Natural Resources. And my first work in climate policy was with the Brightline Defense Project, which is an environmental justice nonprofit based in San Francisco that serves the disadvantaged communities in Bayview Hunters Point, as well as advocates for environmental justice policy priorities in California at the state level. I got to do a lot of incredible work on topics like community workforce development, school bus fleet electrification, updates to Cal Green, equity and municipal climate action plans, racial diversity in the booming tech startup field, and a lot more. And then at UC Berkeley, during the same time that I was with Brightline, um, I was also working in Dr. Wendy Silver's biogeochemistry lab. And this is where I completed my senior thesis on the impacts of compost amendments to net primary productivity across rangeland systems in California. So my time in her lab really solidified my passion for agricultural soils and the integral role that they can play in mitigating the climate crisis while providing a range of social, economic, and environmental co-benefits. So for example, in my thesis, I found a trend that compost did improve forage growth and that in fact, cows preferred to graze on forage, on forage that had compost applied to it. So this was a win-win for the ranchers, for their cows, and for our climate. And then after graduating from UC Berkeley, Carbon 180 was where I was really able to bridge all of this together, my passion for soils and my passion for environmental justice. So back in 2019, I was the second policy hire for our DC office, and I got to help build out the organization's environmental justice initiatives and the agriculture policy portfolio that we still work on today. I get to apply a lot of what I learned in my undergrad, both in my fellowship and in my thesis, to the federal policy advocacy work that we do. And I've gotten much deeper into justice and what it means for a nascent and rapidly emerging field like carbon removal. It's really rewarding work to do with really fantastic people. All right, amazing. So with all that being said, what do you think is the most exciting initiative that your team is working on right now? Yeah, it's really hard to pick just one initiative <laughs> when I think that all the work we're doing right now is really shaping the future of carbon removal. 
But that said, to me, one of the most exciting initiatives that we're working on is the Direct Air Capture Hubs program that was created through the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. So direct air capture is the leading carbon removal technology option, but it really doesn't exist on the ground yet in the United States, and there's only a couple of operating facilities globally. So in order to jumpstart the real-world implementation of these technologies domestically, Congress made a down payment of $3.5 billion in funding for over five years to establish four regional hubs of direct air capture technologies in the country. And so we really think that these hubs are an opportunity to define the field and the future of direct air capture. But taking a step back, I wanted to find a little bit more what direct air capture is. So like I said, it's a technology and it draws down carbon from the atmosphere using chemical processes and giant fans. And then that carbon can be either stored underground in geologic formations or used to form different carbon-based products. Truthfully, direct air capture has received a lot of hesitation and tension from communities and environmental justice groups. I think it's been perceived as a distraction from emissions reductions and decarbonization. And it's also been perceived as what's what they call it uh, a false solution because it's been driven by untrusted and historically harmful fossil fuel companies in the fossil fuel industry. And so frankly, you know, on top of all of this, the benefits of direct air capture just haven't been proven to communities yet because it doesn't exist on the ground. So we think that this hubs program can really change this. Through robust policy design and implementation, we think that the hubs can define the field with really high quality projects that create robust environmental and public health protections, that create new jobs and economic opportunities, and that can facilitate really broad community support. So we've released one white paper setting DAC on track, or DAC means direct air capture, um, and we detail technical and equitable strategies for implementing the program. So some of our justice-focused recommendations include requiring really robust public education and engagement for the hubs so that communities can shape what the hubs look like in their communities. Um, we also recommend prioritizing selection of projects that commit to developing uh, community benefit agreements, which are legal tools that community stakeholders can use in order to shape the benefits that they want to see come out of projects, as well as hold developers legally accountable. And then another recommendation that we put forward is um, to not award any projects that will use what's called enhanced oil recovery. So kind of like how I mentioned earlier, um, after carbon is captured, it can be stored underground or used to create products. Um, what's been happening, especially um, with the fossil fuel industry, is that they take carbon that's been captured and they inject it underground in order to extract previously unreachable oil. And so, you know, there's a lot of issues that come up with this from both the climate perspective as well as a justice perspective. Um, but coming down the line, we have another white paper that's um, where we're going to discuss what success looks like for this program. And we're also planning to do more advocacy with Congress and the Department of Energy in order to ensure that equity and justice are really integrated into the program. Since it is such a massive opportunity for the United States to address our outsized contribution to the climate crisis by removing the legacy emissions that we've emitted into the atmosphere, as well as create long-term economic and social benefits for communities, we think this is a top priority um, when it comes to federal policy for carbon removal. For sure. And so you're talking a lot about environmental justice. So what is that and why is it integral to addressing the climate crisis? 
Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So at its core, environmental justice is racial justice and social justice. And it's a demand for a healthy planet for all people. The environmental justice movement is a struggle for everyone, regardless of color or income level, to thrive in a clean and healthy environment. And the use of the term environment was really intentional in this movement. So while we often think of wilderness when we hear the word environment, the environmental justice movement really redefined this term to include the built environment that most communities of color are familiar with. So when we you know, talk about environment instead of these pristine untouched nature images, uh, what it's really been redefined to mean in the movement is all the areas in which we live, work, eat, play, pray, and worship safely. And the origins of the movement actually trace back to the civil rights movement and the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with black sanitation workers in the South. And I think over the past decades, it's really grown to become a global movement for civil rights, for environmental health, occupational health and safety, indigenous land rights, and a lot of other social and economic justice rights. In addition to environmental justice, I also want to mention a more recent movement which has emerged, which is called climate justice. And so climate justice really frames climate change as a human rights and racial justice issue rather than one that's purely environmental or physical. So this movement acknowledges that climate change disproportionately impacts communities of color and low-income communities through social, economic, public health, and other adverse impacts. And it also brings the justice conversation to an international level, whereas I think environmental justice is usually typically so local, climate justice really gets at um, the disproportionate contributions of the global north and particularly the United States in uh, contributing to the climate crisis that we have today, while the global south disproportionately bears the impacts. But maybe taking a step back from these movements, I think it's also really helpful to just think about justice more broadly. Um, when we talk about justice, I think we usually think of it as like this singular concept, but there are, in fact, a lot of different types of justice. So one variation of justice that's frequently advocated for in the environmental and climate justice movements is one called procedural justice. And so this refers to fair decision-making processes that are inclusive and transparent. Another variation is distributive justice, and this refers to the equitable distribution or allocation of resources, risks, impacts, and benefits across society. A couple others are reparative justice, and this refers to the reparation of previous harms that have been committed through violations and crimes. And then transformative justice, which refers to large-scale changes in society's current systems and structures. And so I think all of these different types of justice really play into the two movements that I mentioned, as well as how we want to think about climate policy and carbon removal policy. And so, you know, climate change is ultimately unjust and no climate solution or policy, including carbon removal, is going to be effective unless we integrate justice. It's a foundational component of climate action. And without it, we really risk further harming communities or risk failing to get carbon removal solutions and projects off the ground, if at all. So figuring out how to empower communities and co-develop carbon removal and other climate tools can really ensure that solutions not only deliver the climate benefits that they promise, but that they also uplift communities, especially those that have been most marginalized and align with their priorities, needs, and values. Amazing. And also, I think when we consider that a lot of those populations have been harmed historically by different government initiatives, 
how important are government policy initiatives in solving climate change compared to other mechanisms like grassroots community organizing or maybe like private philanthropy and innovation? Yeah, I think government policy, grassroots community organizing and private sector innovation and philanthropy all play really crucial and complementary roles when tackling climate change. And I especially want to emphasize the importance of grassroots organizing, even though that's not what I work on and what we do at Carbon 180. Um, grassroots organizing really leads, in my opinion, to most equitable and effective climate solutions, because those that are most equitable and effective are solutions that are community-led and place-based. But that being said, I think the federal government can be a really powerful tool for good because it is so massively resourced and it can be leveraged to fill gaps that the other sectors frankly just can't, as well as reroute power to those that have been most impacted by the climate crisis, as well as support efforts that are being taken, um, undertaken by the other sectors. And so as such a nascent field, the greatest opportunity, in my opinion, to influence carbon removal is through the federal government because of the government's massive resources and power, like I just mentioned. Um, so because of this, I think the federal government has a great opportunity to address major information gaps that are still persisting. Um, it has an opportunity to establish those really robust safeguards when it comes to project implementation. It can strengthen engagement between communities and private and public entities. And most importantly, it can hold actors accountable through legislative and agency actions. I really think that the private sector philanthropy and grassroots can support a lot of these efforts that I just mentioned but none of them are as well positioned as the federal government to take them all on in a coordinated and comprehensive manner. And the, intergovern the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, in 2021 released their sixth assessment report, which estimated that we're going to need to remove somewhere between 100 billion to a trillion tons of carbon dioxide by 2100 if we want to prevent the worst effects of climate change and meet our most ambitious climate goals. So we have a long ways to go if we want to reach the estimates that the IPCC has laid out and address our legacy emissions. That means we're going to need to build out a lot of infrastructure. We're going to need to do a lot of community education and engagement. And we need to assemble an innovative industry that is right now just emerging so that we can remove all of the carbon necessary. And frankly, the private sector alone is not going to be able to do this. And community organizations are already at capacity dealing with a range of urgent topics, including the impacts of climate change that are directly impacting their communities while also being severely under-resourced and under capacity. So for these reasons, the federal government is poised to make the necessary large investments to advance all of these priorities for carbon removal across land-based and technological approaches in a coordinated and thoughtful manner. And where we are today with the burgeoning carbon removal field is in large part thanks to robust investments from the federal government, like the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been appropriated for research, development, demonstration, and deployment of the full portfolio of carbon removal solutions in recent years, as well as initiatives like the Department of Energy's recent carbon negative shot. I think the public and private sectors have to continue to work together in order to catalyze large-scale carbon removal. And none of this can be done equitably without engaging grassroots organizations and community-based organizations in order to make sure that we meet our climate goals, but that we also benefit uh, communities that are going to host these projects and that have been most marginalized. Yeah, for sure. And I think also when we think about the government, I'm wondering how has the 2020 election affected your ability 
to implement climate policy and how will the midterm elections, how will that impact your work? Yeah, this is a great question. So I think politically, um, carbon removal is really unique as a climate solution because it really receives broad bipartisan and bicameral support. So under both the Trump and Biden administrations, as well as the 116th and 117th Congresses, federal support for carbon removal has only continued to grow. And I would say more recently, it's even exploded. Um, so in, the, in just the past few years, funding for federal car federal funding for carbon removal, excuse me, has gone from zero to more than a billion dollars within one single fiscal year. So these investments not only have grown in terms of money, but they've also grown in terms of scope. Whereas direct air capture has historically received the majority of this funding in the most recent fiscal year, fiscal year 2022, we've also seen Congress start to carve out funds for more nascent technologies like carbon mineralization, ocean carbon removal, and bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is referred to often as BECS. We've also seen growing investments on the land side in key programs at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, like the Agricultural Research Service, the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, and the Forest Inventory and Analysis Program, which are all really integral to scaling practices that build agricultural soil carbon and forest carbon. And these programs and related ones support critical activities along these lines that conduct in-house research on soil carbon dynamics. They conduct real-world demonstration trials of practices that support storing carbon. They develop tools and technologies to help us monitor how soil carbon and forest carbon fluctuates across U.S. farms, ranches, and forest lands, and a lot of other activities. So it's been really promising to see just how much funding has gone towards these solutions. But I think aside from just funding, the federal government over the past few years has also launched a number of programs and initiatives um, directly for carbon removal. So, for example, the Energy Act of 2020 established the first ever carbon dioxide removal program, which is housed at the Department of Energy, and it's tasked with advancing the full suite of carbon removal solutions. The Department of Energy also recently launched the carbon negative shot, which I mentioned earlier. And this carbon negative shot um, is meant to develop the carbon removal industry and get carbon removal um, to a place where we're able to remove carbon from the atmosphere at less than $100 per net, per net metric ton, excuse me, as well as advance equity, justice, and sustainability. I've already mentioned the Direct Air Capture Hubs program, which is an investment of $3.5 billion. Um, and so I think it's really promising just to see how all these achievements are really just the beginning. And because of the broad bipartisan and bicameral support thus far, it really only indicates that we can continue to expect momentum in the years to come. Yeah, amazing. And then something that I know Carbon 180 is specifically focusing on is the 2023 Farm Bill. So I'm wondering, why is that so important for climate advocacy? Yeah. So the Farm Bill is an omnibus multi-year bill that's reauthorized about every five years, and it covers the vast majority of agriculture and food programs at the federal government. So if you want to make any big changes to food and agriculture, the Farm Bill is where you do that. The upcoming 2023 Farm Bill will be the next reauthorization, and it's coming at a critical time where U.S. agriculture is at an inflection point, not just for climate change, but for equity and justice as well. So today, farmers and ranchers across the United States are experiencing 
a multitude of climate-related challenges like worsening droughts, devastating wildfires, more extreme temperatures, and increased flooding, which all negatively impact their operational productivity, reduces their crop yields and profit margins, and makes it more difficult for them to grow food and livestock. And then on top of these climate effects, farmers and ranchers are also struggling with these larger systemic issues like increasing land consolidation and increasingly volatile markets. Then on top of all of this, farmers and ranchers of color face all of these barriers further compounded by structural discrimination and a long history of racism from the federal government that has purposely cut them out of opportunities to build intergen intergenerational wealth. So we think that the 2023 Farm Bill is a great opportunity to address all of these interconnected and different moving parts. So at Carbon 180, we recently launched our Farm Bill policy platform, um, which is really focused on scaling soil carbon as well as forest carbon. And I'm going to speak a little bit more to the soil carbon pieces because that's what I work on. But we really think soil carbon can be a major way of tackling the climate crisis while advancing climate justice. Um, so just as a bit of a backgrounder, um, agricultural soil carbon is a land-based solution that involves capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through photosynthesis and then storing a part of that carbon in the soil. And soil carbon is a huge opportunity for the climate, for producers, and for communities. These soils not only clean up the carbon in our atmosphere, but they can provide a range of economic, environmental, and social co-benefits. So for example, for farmers and ranchers, uh, soil carbon can improve their crop yields, improve their profit margins, improve their resilience, and even promote community cohesion because producers really often rely on networks. And then when we think about agricultural communities more broadly, scaling soil carbon can provide local employment and educational opportunities. It can reduce exposure for farm workers to pesticides and fertilizers, and it can overall improve human well-being in these communities. But of course, fully realizing these opportunities is going to take uh, federal policy as well as equitable implementation. And so today, the benefits of soil carbon are still pretty unproven for a lot of producers. And farmers and ranchers need better research. They need better tools in order to transition their operations and feel really confident about implementing these practices. And then in addition to these needs, historically underserved producers they also need better access to land, they need more culturally appropriate technical and financial assistance, and they need better access to government assistance. So as part of our policy platform for the Farm Bill, we're really advocating for robust soil carbon research and monitoring, and we'll soon be publishing a blog as well with justice-focused recommendations to ensure that all farmers and ranchers, regardless of race, um, are able to benefit from the opportunities associated with building soil carbon in their operations. Um, so farmers are on the front line of climate change and the 2023 Farm Bill needs to be ambitious in order to help them. And so how do you still push meaningful policy like the 2023 Farm Bill through the government when many Americans are skeptical of a lot of different climate policies like the Green New Deal for being too radical? I like this question, and I actually don't think that progressive climate policies like the Green New Deal are that unpopular among Americans. I think it's no secret that economic inequality, social and racial injustice, and climate impacts are growing across the country. And I think a lot of the public wants the federal government to address these worsening and interconnected issues. 
So a couple of years ago, Data for Progress and the League of Conservation Voters conducted a nationwide test of local support for 18 different policy platforms that are under consideration in the Green New Deal. And the results of their work actually showed that across the country, the public generally supports a lot of the major elements that are in the Green New Deal, like clean air and water, lead removal, upgrading buildings, land conservation, clean energy jobs, and a lot of others. And then more recently, the Yale Program on Climate Change in partnership with the Yale Center for Environmental Justice released a report on public support for policies in three areas that are really related to climate justice goals. And they also found that overall, there's strong public support for climate justice policies that are currently under consideration by the Biden administration and 117th Congress. More specifically, they found that 68% of Americans support increasing funding to low-income communities and communities of color who have been disproportionately harmed by pollution. They found that 70% of Americans support transitioning the U.S. economy away from fossil fuels to 100% clean energy by 2050. And they found that about 80% of Americans support creating climate-friendly jobs, like reestablishing the Civilian Conservation Corps or creating a jobs program to hire unemployed oil and gas workers to safely close down abandoned oil and gas wells. So people across the U.S. are increasingly experiencing climate change and inequality and realizing how interconnected all of this really is. And it's because of this interconnectedness that meaningful climate policy is just and equitable. Ultimately, no climate solution or climate policy is gonna be effective without integrating equity and advancing justice. And so because of that, um, I think, you know, policies like the Green New Deal may not be as controversial as we think. And I think it's also really important to note that climate change itself is unjust. Its root causes of colonialism and capitalism are inherently unjust. And so to solve it, we need justice. Perfect. And so what methods should we be using to increase broader awareness of climate change and support for a lot of these solutions to make these policies even less polarizing or to raise even more awareness about what they truly are going to do for Americans? Yeah, I think the public is already becoming increasingly aware of climate change, like we talked about. So once again, research from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication uh, in 2017 showed that 70% of Americans think that global warming is happening right now, and a majority are worried about what the harms are going to cause to them and to their loved ones. And their work actually also found that Latinos and other minority demographic groups are more concerned about climate change than the general population, which frankly makes sense when you think about it, because we know that communities of color are on the front lines of the climate crisis. So naturally those who are disproportionately exposed to and experiencing these impacts are gonna be the most concerned about climate change. And I think when it comes to carbon removal, we do start to see some polarization like you um, spoke about. So I think that's for you know various reasons, um, especially on the technological side, because these technologies don't exist on the ground yet. They're largely unfamiliar to the general public and their benefits really haven't been proven. So it's really difficult for people to form an opinion or support carbon removal if they don't know what it is, what it does, why it's important, how it works or what its effects are. So Data for Progress did some voter polling that showed that of course, very few voters are familiar with carbon removal but that after learning more, over half of the voters that they polled had a favorable opinion of carbon removal solutions. So then I think when we you know, think about this um, more broadly and what federal policy can do, 
I think federal investments really need to focus on building community education and community capacity to engage in carbon removal. Unfortunately, thus far, federal investments in community capacity building have been pretty insufficient, but that's starting to change. So for example, we can see in the Inflation Reduction Act, there have been um, millions of dollars invested in environmental and climate justice provisions. And the Department of Energy is also now requiring community and labor engagement plans as part of all the applications related to demonstration and deployment funding opportunity announcement announcements that result from the bipartisan infrastructure law, which should include the direct air capture hubs program that, that I've been talking about. So I think while this creates opportunity for robust community education to occur, there's still a lot more that the federal government can be doing to facilitate public education on carbon removal. I think there's also roles for the private sector and philanthropy to fill this gap. But I think we also really need to take a step back and consider who are trusted actors for communities to perform this education. And maybe how can we be enabling communities to build their own education and vision for carbon removal? And I think that's where federal government funding can be really crucial. And the success of the carbon removal field is really gonna be contingent on public support. And that's why education is gonna be so critical, especially as we get more policies out the door. So without proper education, we really risk continuing down a divisive path where carbon removal is sometimes referred to as a false solution. And then that shuts down any conversation on how carbon removal could be a benefit for climate and for communities. So I believe that as communities and the organizations that serve them become more informed on carbon removal, that they can hopefully then shape the types of projects that they want to see in their areas and drive the types of policies that they want in order to enable carbon removal and climate solutions in the future. That way we can you know, have less division and instead all be moving towards a shared vision. Perfect. And then the last question that I want to ask today is, how close do you think carbon removal research is to being meaningful, meaningfully implemented across the United States? Yeah, so carbon removal encompasses a wide range of solutions like I've touched on today, from engineered technologies to land-based ecosystems. And each of these approaches are in really different stages of readiness and with different research needs. So federally supported research into carbon removal really only kicked off a few years ago, which I think I mentioned. And there's a lot more research that needs to happen in order to fill remaining knowledge gaps and address technical, social, and economic challenges. So on the land-based side of carbon removal, I think a lot of these practices that promote soil carbon and forest carbon are actually ready to deploy today and at really relatively low costs. But there's still knowledge gaps on some of the fundamentals of soil carbon dynamics and gaps in understanding which soil carbon practices work best across different geographies and operations. And then in order to ensure that carbon is being stored long term in our soils and forests, we need to develop more tools in order to empower producers and landowners to track that, monitor it, and then make decisions for their operations in order to make sure that it continues to accrue. I think we also need research on some of the more frontier practices that are proposed on the land side, so like compost and biochar. Um, so, you know, I think biochar has really come up as an emerging, promising climate solution, but we really need more research in order to identify how we can sustainably produce it and how we can appropriately apply it. 
But I think that being said, there's burgeoning interest from farmers and ranchers to adopt these practices across the United States. And so, um, you know, we especially see this with cover crops where um, I think a lot of research has been done and then we know the proven benefits that come with them. And then on the more technological side, excuse me, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done for emerging technologies like carbon mineralization, ocean carbon removal, but it's been really exciting to see direct air capture technologies um, move from this research and development phase to this demonstration and deployment phase. So like I mentioned, the direct air capture hubs program is really a perfect example of how this research that's been done for so long on direct air capture is now being taken into implementation across the United States. I think what's sorely missing on the technological side though, is more investment in social science research, which is really needed so that we can anticipate the impacts that will come with scaling these technologies and help us avoid perverse policy designs and incentives that could result in worse outcomes. And so I think some of this research can include stuff like, in, like uh, studying the social impacts of industry expansion to support technological carbon removal, as well as some community-based participatory research for what deploying these projects should look like. And Dr. Holly Buck has been doing really great work in this area and shaping what future social science research needs for carbon removal are. The carbon removal field is still fairly nascent, and for that reason, a lot of research still needs to be done before that research can be implement implemented across the U.S. But I think the field is starting to move really rapidly, and we're reaching a lot of points on the ground with real-world demonstrations and deployment. But carbon removal is a long-term game, and the investments in research, development, and deployment today are really going to shape what these technologies and approaches are going to look like decades from now, which is why it's so important for us to continue leveraging federal funding and federal investments so that we don't risk not being ready or being able to adequately deploy these solutions in the future, because carbon removal is going to help us make sure that we have a livable climate future for all. Okay, and then how do we strike a balance between implementing carbon removal and still incentivizing people to decrease their future emissions? This is a great question. At Carbon 180, we firmly believe that carbon removal cannot and should not lead to any delays in emissions reductions. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and many other climate experts have shown that rapid and drastic emissions reductions are imperative to halt the climate crisis and that these efforts need to be our number one priority. Carbon removal isn't a, a silver bullet, and the longer that we wait to make emissions cuts, the more carbon removal we're going to need and the more infrastructure we're going to need, the more resources we're going to need in order to dedicate to these solutions. Along these lines, at Carbon 180, we also believe that the role of carbon removal is to address legacy or historical emissions. And what I mean by this is that carbon removal should only be used to address carbon that already exists in our atmosphere and that was emitted decades ago or maybe more recently. So carbon removal should not be used as an offset mechanism or as I pointed to earlier, as a reason to delay our emissions reductions efforts. I think when we look at federal investments and corporate commitments for mitigation, including emissions reductions and carbon removal, it's really important that we advance these separately and count them separately. So that way we can make sure that emissions reductions are receiving the majority of intention and investments and that carbon removal is not being used in place of these efforts. But we really need to stop framing it as either or and instead highlight that we need both and that both are essential in meeting our global climate goals. I really often get the question, why don't we take the money invested in carbon removal and instead put it towards emissions reductions, um, technologies and efforts? 
And the reason is because carbon removal is still nascent. And like I just pointed to, the investments of today are really paving the way for build out and deployment decades from now. And the longer we wait to reduce our emissions, the more carbon removal we're going to need. And if you've been keeping track of the of each country's contributions to their nationally determined contributions under the, under the Paris Agreement, we're really not where we need to be in terms of cutting our emissions. So like I said before, carbon removal is a long-term game. And if we don't invest sufficiently now, these technologies and approaches are not going to be ready when we need them decades from now. Thank you so much. And then lastly, just if there's anything else you'd like to add before we conclude. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. I really just want to reiterate that carbon removal is necessary for us to meet our climate goals, and it can be a huge opportunity to empower frontline communities across the globe while advancing the priorities of the environmental and climate justice movements like a just economic transition and a regenerative agricultural system. In these early years of the field, we really have an opportunity to do it right and to scale these solutions so that they benefit those that have been most marginalized, while also spurring transformations in our energy, food, and other systems for the better. As a responsible party in ensuring carbon removal gets off the ground in order to address our historical contributions to the climate crisis as a country, federal policy is going to be invaluable to make sure that this vision of a just and equitable carbon removing future really happens. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for all the work that you all are doing over at Carbon 180. And this concludes this episode of Global Visions. And that concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Vanessa for the opportunity to speak with her. We'll see you next time.